bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. We got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, June 14, 2016. This week marks 83 years since establishment of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC. The FDIC was formed June 16, 1933, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed into law the 1933 Banking Act. In the wake of the Great Depression, the FDIC was created to restore trust in the U.S. banking system. I'm pleased this week to be attending the National Council of State Housing Agencies, or NCSHA's, annual Housing Credit Connect Conference. If you're attending as well, please swing by our booth and say hello. To start off the podcast this week, I'll describe in our general news section a comprehensive anti-poverty plan released by House Republican leaders and how the plan can potentially influence tax reform discussions. In our low-income housing tax credit section, I'll discuss new legislation that was introduced to completely restructure nearly all federal affordable housing programs into a single block grant. Then, I'll talk about what one report from the Government Accountability Office discovered about compliance issues and the administration of the low-income housing tax credit. After that, I'll share news about one state's successful efforts to extend its state low-income housing tax credit for three years. In New Markets Tax Credit news, I'll highlight the latest New Markets Tax Credit progress report. I'll also share a newsletter from the Office of the Control of the Currency on how health care centers and community development incentives can be a great fit for each other. In our Historic Tax Credit section, I'll briefly discuss changes made to Iowa's state historic tax credit that make it more attractive to more investors. And I'll close out with Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, where I'll talk about Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch's latest inquiries into administration of the Section 1603 cash grant and renewable energy incentive programs. After that, I'll outline a report from the Joint Committee on Taxation about the different energy tax incentives offered by the federal government. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, last week, House Speaker Paul Ryan unveiled the House Republican Conference's anti-poverty plan. The 41 ideas contained in the plan were drafted by the House Republican Task Force on Poverty, Opportunity, and Upward Mobility. The group's approach to ending poverty is to encourage upward mobility, that is, to help people transition from welfare to work. There's one particular statistic that's mentioned in the report that I think warrants discussion. The report said that despite trillions of dollars spent on poverty alleviation over the past decades, the official poverty rate in 2014 at 14.8%, was no better than it was in 1966 at 14.7%. This figure, though, does not paint a whole or complete picture. Over the past five decades, the war on poverty has shifted from a cash benefit system to non-cash benefits. However, poverty measurements have not changed accordingly. Poverty is still measured by the amount of cash families are given each year. 
That means food stamp benefits and the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit programs are not counted as poverty alleviation. One program of particular note to our listeners, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which provides affordable rents to low-income families, is similarly not counted. With that said, the House Republican Report outlined ideas to overhaul the war on poverty. The plan did not mention new markets tax credits or low-income housing tax credits by name, but the report did make a few housing policy recommendations. For one thing, the task force argued that overlapping housing programs should be merged into a single program. The example given was the Rental Assistance Program under the Rural Housing Service and HUD's Housing Choice Voucher Program. Another recommendation was that HUD adopt the work requirements of the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, or TANF. The report argued that HUD should require residents of Section 8 and public housing to work or prepare for work if they are able. In the same way, the plan said that local jurisdictions that administer housing benefits should have the same work requirements that states mandate for TANF beneficiaries. Another housing-related policy in the plan is to enhance the portability of housing assistance vouchers so that recipients can pursue areas with more affordable housing, education, and job opportunities. I should clarify that the plan is a series of policy recommendations. It is not. It is not introduced legislation. House Republicans called the plan the beginning of a conversation that can help inform tax and regulatory reform. The plan is called a better way our vision for a confident America. So what do you think about the plan? Please share your thoughts with me on Twitter. You can tag me at Novogratik. Speaking of welfare reform, in affordable housing news, a Republican congressman recently introduced a bill to eliminate nearly all federal housing programs by consolidating them into a single state block grant. The Welfare Reform and Upper Mobility Act was introduced by Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. Jordan is the co-founder of the House Freedom Caucus, a conservative group within the House of Representatives. His bill has four co-sponsors, and at least two of them are also members of the House Freedom Caucus. Jordan's legislation would prohibit Congress from funding virtually all housing programs beginning in 2017. Instead, Congress would appropriate funds as block grants to states in an amount that, that, and I quote, bears the same relationship, close quote, to how much each state received under the programs. The legislation calls, though, for a gradual decrease in funding over a 10-year period until spending is cut in half by fiscal year 2027. The bill would cap spending on the block grant for five years at 2016 levels and then cut 10% a year from 2023 to 2028. Jordan's legislation uses the term, quote, means-tested welfare spending, close quote, for the programs it would shift to the states. Those are programs that specifically provide assistance or benefits exclusively to low-income people. Among the programs included to be transferred to the states by Jordan's legislation are the Housing Choice Voucher Program, Public Housing, Section 8, the Home Investment Partnerships Program, Section 202, Housing for the Elderly, Section 811, Housing for People with Disabilities Program, and more.
Now, the low-income housing tax credit is not covered by the bill. Under Jordan's legislation, states would have to match at least 20% of the federal financing with other funds. States would also have to conduct assessment of the programs, as would the Comptroller General of the United States. Now, the legislation was referred to five committees, those being Ways and Means, Agriculture, Energy and Commerce, Financial Services, and Budget. My colleague, Peter Lawrence, in our Washington, D.C. office, points out that this bill is unlikely to advance. But, Peter says, it presents the position of many House conservatives on how affordable housing programs should be treated and could be more seriously considered in the next Congress. This, of course, depending on the results of the November election. You can find the bill at www.taxcredithousing.com. Again, it's called the Welfare Reform and Upward Mobility Act, or H.R. 5360. In other news, the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, released the second of three reports on the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program last week. The report studied how state allocating agencies administer the program. The GAO reports are in response to a request last year by Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Last week's report was based on a review of state's Qualified Allocation Plans, or QAPs, from 2013, as well as more extensive reviews for eight state agencies and one sub-recipient agency. The GAO made three recommendations all focused on how the IRS oversees the program. First, the report said the IRS commissioner should collaborate with allocating agencies to clarify when states must file Form 8823, Reports of Noncompliance or Building Disposition. The GAO said the IRS should collaborate with the Treasury Department to ensure that any clarification guidance is consistent with Treasury regulations. Second, The report called on the IRS to ensure that staff members from the Small Business and Self-Employed Division of the IRS participate in the Physical Inspection Alignment Initiative of the Rental Policy Working Group. That group was established by the White House Domestic Policy Council in 2010. And finally, the report recommended that the IRS Commissioner should evaluate how the IRS could use HUD's Real Estate Assessment Center, or REAC, databases to reassess reporting categories and analyze categories of noncompliance information. None of the recommendations were directed at state allocating agencies themselves. But the report did point out that many states' QAPs didn't include established preferences and selection criteria. Those are required by law. The report also highlighted that some states require a letter of support from a local official in their application, which effectively gives localities veto power over low-income housing tax credit development's locations. GAO said that some states didn't include in their QAPs the specific criteria for awarding discretionary boosts. I note that isn't required by law, though recommended. GAO reiterated its previous criticism of IRS oversight and repeated its recommendation that Congress designate HUD as a joint administrator of the low-income housing tax credit program. The first GAO report came out last summer, and the third report is due early next year. That third report will focus on development costs and the role of syndicators. You can find the most recent GAO report at www.taxcredithousing.com. Now, it does have a long name. It's titled, Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, 
some agencies' practices raise concerns, and IRS could improve noncompliance reporting and data collection. In state news, I have an exciting announcement out of Colorado. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper recently signed a bill extending the state's low-income housing tax credit by three years. House Bill 1465 extends the sunset of the state program from December 31, 2016 to December 31, 2019. The bill was signed into law on June 6th. The bill authorizes the Colorado Housing and Financing Authority to allocate $5 million in state LIHTCs annually in 2017, 2018, and 2019. Previously, properties in counties affected by national disasters were exempt from the $5 million annual cap. The bill keeps the cap exemption, but only for developments in counties affected by national disasters in 2015 and 2016. The program has had substantial impact on the state of Colorado. Colorado reintroduced a state LIHTC in 2015 and recently reported that the tax credit supported the development of more than 1,900 new affordable rental housing units in one year. To read Colorado House Bill 1465, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. And if you'd like to learn more about local housing tax credits in your state, please contact one of my partners in an Novogratic office near you. Our 22 firm locations across the country are listed at www.novoco.com. In community development news, the New Markets Tax Credit Coalition released its annual report, and the results are impressive. It was the 12th annual report issued by the group and included information based on a survey that it sent to all community development entities that have received New Market Tax Credit allocations. 65 CDEs responded. The report said the CDEs had received $19.1 billion in allocation throughout the course of the program. The coalition reported on the CDE's new market test for activity in the fiscal year 2015. That activity included $1.8 billion in qualified low-income community investments and $3.6 billion in total project financing. Nearly 45,000 jobs created or retained by projects that closed in 2015. There were 194 businesses and projects that received financing and another $4.1 billion in projects are planned for 2016. Of course, this comes in the shadow of the biggest new market tax allocation history, which is coming later this year. That will be the $7 billion round, which combines the 2015 and 2016 allocation rounds of $3.5 billion each. The awards are expected, as I noted, in the fall, likely September or October. A particular interest in the new market tax coalition report is a breakdown of the types of businesses financed last year with new market tax credits. Manufacturing or industrial businesses made up more than 26% of the projects. But what was most impressive was the fact that 31 different types of businesses were represented, and some of those categories actually included more than one type of business. It's a good reminder that not only does the new market tax credit benefit a variety of low-income neighborhoods, it also helps provide financing for a wide variety of businesses. You can see the report at www.newmarketscredits.com. It's called the New Markets Tax Credit Progress Report 2016. In other community development news, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency last week published a newsletter on financing community health centers. 
The newsletter examined how financing federally funded health centers can help banks increase lending opportunities and fulfill Community Reinvestment Act or CRA commitments. The OCC said demand for health centers has doubled since 2002, and it's expected to double again by the year 2020. About $8.5 billion will be needed by the year 2020 to finance healthcare expansions. One of the articles in the newsletter was co-authored by Annie Donovan, director of the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. The article mentioned how CDFIs can bring financing opportunities, such as the New Market Tax Credit, to federally qualified health centers. Another article detailed the use of New Markets Tax Credits in the Healthy Futures Fund. It's an investment vehicle that connects health services with affordable housing. The newsletter also included profiles of healthcare centers funded by the New Market Tax Credit. Check out the OCC newsletter to read more about why the New Markets Tax Credit and community health centers go hand in hand. Go to www.occ.gov. In historic tax credit news, a bill signed by the governor of Iowa made a technical change to the State Historic Preservation and Cultural Entertainment District tax credit that will make the credit more attractive to some investors. The Iowa bill, which was signed by Republican Governor Terry Branstad, extended the period for which taxpayers may claim their credits. Previously, the tax credit was allowed to be taken only for one year beyond the year in which it could initially be claimed. The new legislation extends that to five years. The change makes the credit more useful and attractive for investors who may not have much tax liability over two years, but who could find the credit valuable over five years. The bill also transferred certain duties to the State Economic Development Authority. The credit's oversight was previously handled by the Department of Cultural Affairs. The Iowa Historic Preservation and Cultural Entertainment District tax credit is equal to 25% of qualified rehabilitation expenditures. It does have an annual cap of $45 million and has no sunset. If you're interested in developing an historic tax credit project in Iowa, please contact my partner Michael Kressig in our St. Louis office. In renewable energy tax credit news, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Arne Hatch sent a letter to Treasury, IRS, and the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, or TIGTA, last week. Hatch wrote to request additional information on the use and administration of Section 1603 cash grants and energy tax credits. This isn't the first time Senator Hatch has inquired about the energy incentive programs. In March, he requested information from Treasury and the IRS on the safeguards and review strategies of Section 1603 cash grant awards. Treasury responded to that previous request last month. Hatch's latest inquiry requests additional data on everything from Treasury's risk-based screening criteria to the IRS's verification process for tax returns claiming the energy credit. He also asked TIGTA about the extent to which Section 1603 grant recipients have claimed disallowed or non-allowable energy tax credits. Hatch requested responses by Thursday, June 30th. And while we're on the subject of the Senate Finance Committee, the Joint Committee on Taxation released a report last week analyzing energy-related tax expenditures. This report was released in preparation for a Senate Finance Committee hearing scheduled for today on tax incentives related to energy. A look at the report's summary of energy provision 
shows one stark difference between fossil fuel incentives and renewable energy incentives. Tax incentives for renewable energy sources continue on short-term extensions, whereas tax provisions for fossil fuels had no expiration date. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, the JCT found that fossil fuels still account for more than 80% of U.S. energy consumption. By contrast, a little less than 10% of U.S. energy consumption came from renewable energy sources. Still, renewable energy production has increased greatly over the past few years, and the JCT attributes part of that growth to renewable energy tax credits. One interesting point the report brings up is whether tax incentives for both the fossil fuel and renewable energy industries represent conflicting government policy. Now, I'll share next week what members of the Senate Finance Committee hearing say about the report findings. I'll share next week what members at the Senate Finance Committee hearing say about the report's findings. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. And one quick announcement. As you may have seen, if you follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, the deadline to submit nominations for the Novogratic Historic Rehabilitation Awards has been extended. It's been extended to Tuesday, June 21st. You'll find nomination details at www.novaco.com. That's it for now. This is Michael Novogratic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.